Well, let's hear from the Word of God this morning. I'm reading from, Rome, from John chapter 13, John, John's Gospel chapter 13. We're going to read from verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed or bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say right, for I, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. When we come to this passage in John's Gospel, we're at a moment of transition in Jesus' life and in the lives of His followers, and though they don't realize it, in the life of Israel as a nation. The transition is marked, really, in chapter 12, where we find Jesus being approached by a group of Greeks, Greek-speaking people, people who were not native to that area. They've come to the disciples, and they're They've come seeking, sir, we would see Jesus, was their request. They're looking for Jesus. In many ways, that's come earlier than, uh, than Jesus had wanted, and yet it's a, a foretaste, really, of what is to come. Then Jesus is troubled in spirit. He talks about uh, His dying like a seed that falls to the ground and is buried and dies in the soil before it springs to life and begins to yield a crop. And the crux of the passage comes in verse 36 of chapter 12, when He departs from
from the crowd. His very public ministry that he had conducted now for over three and a half years comes to a decisive end. At that point, he will no longer speak to Israel, the nation. He will no longer address them straightforwardly. From this point onwards, he turns from the nation in a quite decisive manner. And as that is done, the prophet Isaiah is quoted twice from Isaiah 6 and from Isaiah 53. And he no longer gives them signs. Why? Because they would not believe. Because they've been hardened. God has hardened their hearts. They've rejected their Messiah. The hardening has kicked in. And the authorities are now committed to getting rid of Jesus. And it's in the context of that great transition that we come to this action of Jesus in washing the feet of the disciples. When somebody does something strange, when they do something uncharacteristic, then you want to pause for a moment and ask yourself, what is going on here? And when we come to this section, it would be very easy to think we know exactly what's going on here. What's going on here is Jesus is fed up with the smell, and He wants to wash their feet to get rid of the smell from their, their bare feet in that hot, humid climate. Well, we would be wrong if we thought that that's what's going on here. So, what is going on here? I, I suggest to you that the center of the drama of this passage is the Lord Jesus Himself. And so, I propose that we ask three questions of the passage, quite simple questions. What is Jesus doing here? What did Jesus know? What does Jesus do? And then what does Jesus say? What did Jesus know? You'll notice if you were paying attention in verses 1 and 2 here, that the use of this idea of knowing something appears twice there, and then again a little later on when it says that He knew who was going to betray Him. So what does Jesus know? This is quite significant. And the answer of those verses is that He knew His mission, first of all. He knew His mission before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. What did He know at this point in His life, at this stage in His career, at this point in His ministry, He knew His mission, and it's flagged up to us by two chronological markers, markers in the text. There's, if you like, a kind of natural chronological marker. It was the Feast of the Passover. The Feast of the Passover as a religious festival has been on the back burner of the mind of the Apostle John right from the beginning of his narration of the story of Jesus. Because as he looked over Jesus' life, he recognized that it seems as if the Passover has always been there right from the beginning. You find it in chapter 1, for example, when twice in that chapter, John the Baptist identifies Jesus in the crowd and says to the crowd, Behold, look, wake up, pay attention, 
the Lamb of God. Here is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Passover, you remember, is that event when Israel remembers the slaughtering of the Passover lamb, the dabbing of its blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the homes in Egypt, and the angel of judgment passing over the people, passing over God's people who are covered and hiding under the blood of the lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. It was the Passover. One of the things we've learned about this Passover is that a decision has already been made by the hierarchy, by the high priest himself, that in order to contain the unrest in Jerusalem, they're going to have to get rid of Jesus. And his argument is this, it is expedient, it is politically expedient that one man should die instead of, in place of, as a substitute for the people. Kill Jesus and the Romans will be pacified. Kill Jesus and everything will go back to normal. Kill Jesus and all this religious unrest in our synagogues and in our temple will quieten down. Kill, kill Jesus and all will be well. It was that Passover. And Jesus knew that that Passover coincided with another time, this time not earthly chronological time, but heavenly determined time. It's called the hour, His hour. Again and again in John's gospel, this hour determined by the Father has been in the back of Jesus' mind. When His mother, Mary, at the wedding, you'll remember, asked him to inter interfere, to, to help out the couple because things weren't going very well as far as the catering arrangements had been concerned. And Jesus tells his mother, my time, my hour has not yet come. That's repeated again and again in John's gospel, my hour has not yet come. But now, in the chronology of heaven, the time has come. Jesus knew that His time had come to leave the world and go to His Father. That was always the plan, that He would leave the world and go to the Father. He had said to them earlier on in chapter 7, I will be with you a little longer, then I am going to Him who sent me. Later on, He'll explain to them, I came from the Father. I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. When he prays for them at the end of this evening in chapter 17, he says, I am no longer in the world, they are in the world, and I'm coming to you to pray on their behalf. Why had he come into the world? Well, John the Baptist had put it concisely. He had come to save his people from their sins. Jesus has explained it in His parable of the Good Shepherd. The shepherd calls his sheep by name. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He had come into the world in order that he might die. Jesus knew His mission. He'd come into the world to complete this great plan of God in order that He might rescue you and me from sin and from wrath 
and from hell. But not only did he know his mission, he knew his identity. Do you see this? Jesus, knowing, verse 3, that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. Now, interesting here, the word that's used in this chapter about in reference to the Lord Jesus is His human name. We're thinking here of the human psychology, the human knowledge, the human understanding, the human emotions, the human reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ, unaided by His divine nature, unaided by anything other than the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, in His human self-consciousness, He is fully aware of who He really is, that is, of His divine nature. He's fully aware of why He's in the world. He's come to be God's Messiah. He has the power of the Holy Spirit. And He has come from God and is going to God. He's fully aware that God has given him, as he puts it, all things. We find this again and again in John's Gospel in chapter 5. The Father has life in himself. That is standalone, eternal, self-sufficient, self-generating life. And the Father has given the Son to have standalone, eternal, self-generating life. We've seen it in the language Jesus uses for Himself. I am, before Abraham was. I am, that description that God uses of Himself when He's talking to Moses. And He tells Moses, go to the children of Israel and tell them, I am has sent you, the one who lives by Himself, of Himself, without there being anything upon which his life is contingent or dependent, he, his is self-authored eternal life. He knew that everything had been given to him by the Father. Authority over all things had come by his eternal generation from the Father, from all eternity. He had shared all authority. The human Jesus understands his own divinity, understands his own origins, he understands his own identity. He had come from God and was returning to God. And so as we begin to try and unpick what's going on in this dramatic story, that's where we must begin with what Jesus knew. He knew He'd come into the world to save His people. That's why it refers to those who are His own. He would lay down His life for His own. The shepherd would die for the sheep that were His own. He had come with, this, with His own in mind in order that He might deliver them, rescue them from danger. What a joy it is this morning as you and I come to worship, to reflect on this and, and to contemplate the wonder of this, that the one who had come from God came alongside us, came to that Passover came to that point of death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, came that route in order that He might save His own. Brothers and sisters, you and I this morning, He came to save His own from their sins. That's what Jesus knew. 
Now, knowing that, and this is what we have to bear in mind, knowing that, you see the way in which John puts it, Jesus, knowing that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose. What did Jesus do? Well, the overriding caption, I think, of this second heading is there at the end of verse 1. What did He do? He loved His own to the end. He loved His own to the end. How did He show them that? What does He do now that demonstrates what in this passage illustrates what it means for Jesus to love His own to the end? Well, here we're told, Jesus, knowing, verse 4, rose from supper. Now, what we have to see then is that this language that's used here is signaling something to us about the action that's about to take place. In fact, language that Jesus will use later on that we're not going to look at yet, but will in a moment, when He says to Peter, Peter, you will not understand this, but afterwards you will understand. Echoes words we find earlier in John's gospel when we are told about something else Jesus did, they didn't understand what He was doing, but when He had risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit had come, then they understood. Jesus is about to do something they will not understand until after the resurrection. So, bearing with that, that in your mind, let's look at what is described here. He loved His own to the end. So, knowing that the Father had put all things into His hand, He rises from His own place. Well, what was His own place? We've just been told He had come from God. He rose from His own place. He had eternally been with God. John in chapter 1 has reminded us of this. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was, was, with, was God. From all eternity, He had been in vibrant, living union and communion with His Father and with the Spirit from all eternity, face to face with God. He was God. He had come from God as God, and He had risen from His place. Knowing that, He rose from supper, and He lays aside His outer garments. He puts them aside. Those were the, your better clothes that you wore over a kind of slip. I don't know what we would call it nowadays, but anyway, something, a, a, an undergarment that He would have worn. The outer clothes would have identified Him as a kind of middle-class teacher, rabbi, they were whatever glory Jesus had from an earthly point of view in those outer clothes. He removed those. He takes a towel and ties it round His waist. Only the lowest slave would do that, usually a Gentile, because they wouldn't want to subject a Jewish person to that kind of menial task. He takes the towel and He wraps it around His waist. What is he doing? Well, he's performing an 
objective act of self-humiliation. That's what he's doing. Knowing who he is, he is stripping himself of every outward sign of who he might be. Not only that, but he is putting on himself the badge of the lowest slave, which means he is putting on an indicator that whatever imagination you might have about who he might be, now he doesn't look anything like what you're imagining he might be externally. He is making himself a servant, a slave of all, laying aside, taking on the badge of the servant. He's doing this self-consciously. He's self-denying, self-giving, self-humiliating. Of course, the Lord Jesus, in humbling Himself, did not cast away His deity. He did not stop being God because if He had stopped being God for a nanosecond, everything that there is in creation would cease to be in that nanosecond. As God, He's still upholding the universe by the word of His power. As God, He is still making everything happen. Every atom is moving, every every. Every seed is growing. Every breath is being taken by His express will because He remains God as God. But in His humanity, God with skin on, God one of us, He's humbled Himself. He's taken on our humanity. He's come down to our level. His dignity is obscured. Who He really is, is even more obscured as He puts on the towel. It's going to be even more dramatically obscured when He's hanging naked on a cross of wood, being despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Your Savior did that for you. Your Savior humbled Himself for you. Your Savior allowed Himself to be stripped of dignity for you. There were no lengths to which He would not go for those whom He loved. He loved you, His own, that much. The Apostle Paul reflects on this when he's thinking about Christ in Philippians chapter 2, and he reminds us of who He is. He's by very nature God. He's by nature equal with God. And yet, what does He do? He humbles Himself. He empties Himself, not by losing who He was, but by taking something He never had before. He empties Himself and takes on the form of a slave, a servant. He is found in fashion, not even as an angel. Like there's God, and then there's all of created reality, and in created reality, the angels are the top of the tree then the cows, and then people. What does He come as? He comes, He takes the nature of a man, found in fashion as a man, and He humbles Himself even more to death, death on the cursed cross. Who does He do it for? He does it for His people. He does it for His own. He does it for you and I, He does it out of absolute love. 
Well, you see the language that's used here, rising, laying aside, tying round his waist the towel, pouring water into a basin. You know, one of the features of John's gospel, I was saying this to Jason earlier, one of the, I, I preached through John's gospel on Sunday evenings as I was preaching through Isaiah Sunday mornings. Isaiah went on a long, long time. It's a very, very long, long book. By the time we'd finished it, the news was that Isaiah was regretting ever having written it. But that's another question altogether. But one of the great things about doing those two books side by side and preaching them was the way in which Isaiah, Isaiah is influencing John, and John is seeing in the book of Isaiah the building blocks of Jesus' own life. It's amazing. By the way, it's properly pronounced Isaiah, but, but I'm translating it for you uh, this morning very kindly, graciously, because I'm a kind and gracious person. Although, if you ask my wife, she may say other things. But anyway, that, that's... But, but, but Isaiah's language is found here, putting on the badge of the servant. You know, Isaiah paints a composite picture of the Messiah. He tells us the Messiah is human. He's going to come from David's line. Yeah, he says that. But he says some strange things about the Messiah. He says he's going to be born of a virgin. He says about the Messiah he's going to have divine titles, divine honors, that He's going to be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. He paints this great picture, and so you get to chapter 40, and good news rings out in chapter 40 of comfort to the people of God because their sins have been forgiven, and God is coming. God is coming. Behold, God is coming. The glory of God is coming, and we're all excited and ready to see the glory of God that is now coming to rescue and bring salvation to the world when suddenly there is a shift. Behold my servant. And we think, what's, gone, what's happened here? I thought God was coming. Behold my servant. And then we discover the servant is God. God is high and exalted. The servant is high and exalted. But He's come as a servant. When God comes, He will come as a servant to be despised and rejected by men. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, He will pour out His soul. That's how He will wash us. That's how He will make purification, clean us up, make us fit for heaven, wash away our, our sins, but also continue washing us until we are clean through and through. That's how He'll do it. He will pour out His soul to death. And Jesus is figuring this. He's picturing this as He pours water into the basin, as He begins to wash the feet of His disciples. Isaiah's ringing in our minds, he shall sprinkle many nations. Jesus said he'd come to give his life as a ransom for many. He would pour out his soul to death that he might sprinkle or clean many nations. 
water here. In fact, the action of Jesus here in John's gospel fits a, uh, the way in which he's constructed the book. It mirrors the very first miracle Jesus performs when at the wedding, the water that's set aside for ceremonial washing and cleansing so that you may eat. Ceremonial washing and cleansing so that you may go to the synagogue. Ceremonial washing and cleansing before you say your prayers. The water is turned to wine. The wine that will become the symbol of the blood of Christ. The wine that will become the basis of a cleansing that goes further, goes deeper, lasts longer than the ceremonial washing of Israel. He washed their feet. But then the third thing that I want you to notice is, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? There are two conversations. He comes pouring water into the basin. He's washing their feet. comes to Simon Peter. Oh, Simon, there's one of them in every church, argumentative, enthusiastic, well-meaning. They manage to plant a big foot in their mouth on every occasion. What do you think you're doing, Lord? I'm washing your feet. Can you not see? You're never going to wash my feet, Lord. Never in a million years. Jesus says to him, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have absolutely no relationship with me. No share, fellowship. No part in me. You're cut off. Well, Peter knew that was pretty serious. He realized there was more to this washing than just the washing of the feet. He understood there was at least something more to this. Well, if that's the way you're taking it, Lord, hose me down. All over. Give me the whole over thing, you know, head and hands, the whole works. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I admire your enthusiasm. But the one who's had a bath doesn't need anything other than to wash their feet because they're completely clean. And in case you think I'm, about, I'm talking about washing and bathing, you are clean, but not every one of you is clean. And John adds these words, he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you is clean. John's cheating here, by the way. John's living post-resurrection, and he's telling you what it was they came to understand about what Jesus was doing. He wasn't talking about the physical washing. He was talking about what it pointed to. He was pointing to a spiritual cleansing that we need in our lives. He was saying that for the majority of them, there around that table, they were already clean spiritually. They'd been born again spiritually. But they'd got dirty that day. They needed cleansing for the, for the sins of that day. So he was washing that away. He was washing today's sins away. The blood of the Lord Jesus goes on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. 
We can come to Him today and say, Father, forgive today's sins. But you don't need to be born again, again. Very interesting, the word that's used for bath here is the word used by Paul in Titus when he talks about the washing of the new birth, literally, the bath of the new birth. Born again of water and the Spirit. Jesus ministers to all of these people, among whom is a, is a betrayer, among whom is a traitor. Peter is going to be the traitor. There is not one microscopic difference between what Peter will do and what Judas did, not one. Jesus is ministering to them all. Peter shows the first signs here that he's going to take seriously. Jesus' work. He's come into the world, you see, to clean us up, to cleanse us from our sin, to renew us. And there's that initial cleansing when we first come to the Lord Jesus and He cleans us up all over. He gives us the new birth. We're born again. And then we go on in our Christian life, just as people in those days would have a bath at home, and then they would walk to the place where they were having dinner. And as they walked in their flip-flops or whatever, their feet would get dusty. The Palestinian streets were unpaved, a bit like your streets, I think it was. Um, actually, Philly's streets are even worse than yours, if that's possible. It's true. Um, and as they made their way, don't you just love Scotsmen, by the way? There's a thing about Scottish character you need to know. Just, I need to keep reminding people of this. The more we insult you, the more we love you. <laughs> it's a test of affection. So there you go. You're getting it this morning in a big way. Uh, the, so as you walk your way through the streets, your feet get dirty. Very often when you arrive there, if there were, if there were staff in the home that you were going to, the lowest, most menial of the staff would wash the feet of the guests before they sat down. That's the background. What Jesus is teaching us here is that as we walk our way through the world from day to day, we get our feet dirty. We need cleansing, which is why He taught us to pray, forgive us today's sins. Then having washed them, having spoken to them, Jesus resumes His place. When he'd finished, he sat down, and then he spoke to them again. Having finished and sat down, he gathers them around him, and he says to them, do you know what I've just done? Well, Lord, you said we wouldn't know. No, he said, but, but do you, what do you get out of what I've just done? I am your Lord and Master. And I want you to serve one another. Only I can serve you with salvation. But you can serve one another. You can do what you need to do for each other within the family of God. You can encourage one another to keep coming for that cleansing. You can keep encouraging one another to keep coming back to the Lord Jesus for that relationship to be restored and maintained. Help each other. Serve one another. Serve one another within the body of Christ. That's how you live out your new relationship 
to me, Jesus says. Because once I leave you, once I go and sit down, not just at the table with you as I'm doing tonight, but when I sit down having finished the work that I came to do for my own, I will be sitting down on the throne of God above. I am going back to God. I will be in the place of all power and authority. You will be my subjects as well as my sons and daughters. And remember, when I'm there, that I'm not only your Lord, which is very scary, but I am your dear Master, who has been with you all this time. And as your Lord and Master, I'm the one who tells you what to believe. I'm the one who tells you how to behave. And I point to myself. What did I do when I was among you? I humbled myself. I took being misunderstood. I took being misrepresented. I just poured out my life to serve you with salvation. Can't you just take time to spend with one another? Can't you just take time to come alongside a hurting brother or sister? Can't you just take time to minister into one another's lives the love, the thoughtfulness, the kindness, the generosity of the Lord Jesus for His own? Turn to these men. Look around this room and say about each person you see, they are His own. And because I am part of Him, these are my own family that He loves and that He has brought into my life for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would give us an increasing awareness of the loving kindness of You, our Father, of Your Son, our Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a sense of the wonder of what it is to be your children. And as we delight in knowing that he laid down his life for his own, help us, we pray, to do what we need to do, to serve one another within the body of Christ. In Jesus' strong name we pray.